Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the second week of uh, Lenacker uh, lecture series on um, environmental governance uh, and resilience. Um, it's a great pleasure and even greater privilege uh, to introduce to you today's speaker, Professor Cathy uh, Willis. Um, Cathy is Tasso Leventis Chair um, in Biodiversity and the Director of Biodiversity Institute um, at the Department of Zoology. Um, and this institute is part of uh, Oxford Martin School. You might not know um, that uh, Kathy is also an accomplished uh, singer. Uh, and early on in her career, um, Kathy was in two minds about whether to choose music or ecology. And I can't tell you how fortunate we are that she decided to choose uh, ecology. Kathy did her PhD uh, on the other side. Um, and then held a number of prestigious fellowships in uh, Cambridge University. Um, in 1999, uh, Oxford struck lucky, lucky once again when Cathy decided to come here on a university lectureship at the School of Geography. Um, in uh, 2010, Cathy moved uh, over to the Department of Zoology uh, to her present uh, <coughs> position. Um, I have worked quite closely uh, with Cathy, so I know her office uh, reasonably well. And a coffee mug on Kathy's desk reads, number one, have a cup of coffee. Number two, conquer the world. And number three, uh, have a biscuit. So today, Kathy is going to give us uh, some snippets from her plans to conquer the world. Um, planning for ecological resilience of landscapes, importance of the past uh, to plan the future. Thank you very much, Noel. Well, I'm not going to sing, I hasten to add. Uh, although sometimes I think it might be easier. So, thank you. I want to start with this slightly long quote, but I think this, in a, in a sense, summarises everything that we should be thinking about in terms of ecological resilience. And it's by, a, I think, an absolutely classic paper that was published in Nature in 2001 by Schaefer and other colleagues who very much um, have led the way in terms of uh, ecological resilience. And it reads as follows. All of ecosystems are exposed to gradual changes in climate, nutrient loading, habitat fragmentation, or biotic exploitation. Nature is usually assumed to respond in a gradual change in a smooth way. That's very much how we're all taught at the beginning when we first of all start our ecology lectures. However, studies on lakes, coral reefs, oceans, forests, and arid lands have shown that smooth change can be interrupted by sudden drastic switches to a contrasting state. Although diverse events can trigger such shifts, recent studies show that a loss of resilience usually paves the way for a switch to an alternative state. And this is the key point. This suggests that strategies for sustainable management of such ecosystems should focus on maintaining resilience. Now, that call has been taken up by a number of very uh, significant and large conservation organisations. I just want to give you two examples. The first one is WWF. I think I can get this to work. WWF UK and WWF International. They have... Um, a, a user's manual for building resistance and resilience to climate change in natural systems. And they have a statement where they say, by 2050, we will have created resilience in the southern oceans. Now, incredibly ambitious, um, and of course the first question is, what do you mean by resilience? And the second one is, which part of the southern ocean are we talking about here? I don't want to get WWF, but you can see that there's a, there are very, very bold ambitions to to build on and create resilience. The other one is the Strategic Plan for Biodiversity Action. This is the Convention on Biological Diversity. 
And Target 15, this was, uh, this was last year, this came out, Target 15, by 2020, ecosystem resilience and the contribution of biodiversity to carbon stocks has been enhanced through conservation and restoration. <coughs> so very big goals to, to really understand and then start to manage for e- ecosystem resilience. <coughs> so today I want to really take those goals and say, can we do this? How can we do this? Where's the science got to? First of all, I want to ask, what do we already know about resilience? And then the next question, which starts to get more tricky, how do we take that knowledge that we know and convert it into meaningful management and management strategies? And as a scientist, what information do we need in order to be able to determine and plan for resilience? And then finally, where the future research challenges are. So let's start off with what we already know about resilience in here. I want to give some definitions at the beginning. I'm sure every single speaker who talks on resilience over the next six weeks will give you a slightly different definition. I think in some ways that is one of the, one of the problems that we have to um, address is this whole question of what do we mean by resilience? And I, I think for me, um, Holling's first um, uh, definition in here is probably one of the best. Resilience is the capacity of a system to absorb disturbance and still retain its basic function. So it's this one here, ecological resilience. So you've got your ball and you have your, your, alternative, your, two basic, your two alternative basins in here. And it's how hard can you push the ball and yet the ball re- remains between the two before it goes off into one basin or the other. But we also have this so-called engineering resilience, which is if you push your ball up the side, how quickly does it take to come back? So how, if you're thinking about it in terms of ecosystem um, functioning, if you clear an ecosystem, how quickly does the vegetation come back on that ecosystem? Now, both of these definitions are firmly embedded with all, within the ecological literature on resilience and um, used interchangeably. But this is the first thing we know, and I just want to first of all go through the... I think there's six key factors that we should have to take as read with this. And the first and the most basic is that loss of resilience leads to, um, you move from one stable state to another. So this is just a very simple example here. But here we have a coral-dominated seascape. There's a loss of resilience due to land use change and eutrophication going on. And the alternative stable state is the um, sediment-laden ecosystem. The second thing we know is it's normally a combination of factors. It's not a nice linear relationship. There's normally one or two or even three um, things that lead to a loss of resilience. <coughs> so in here, we have um, clear, walk, clear water lakes of one um, stable state, turbid water lakes of the other. And it's both It's here, it's phosphorus accumulation and flooding that lead to basically a regime shift where you go into an alternative stable state and so on and so forth. These are uh, reviewed very well in this paper by Falk. And I want to first of all give you an example of that as well. Um, let's move this down. In that the third point is that threshold events, and I think I need to make this point because of a number of things I've read recently, threshold events can and do occur um, naturally and throughout time. They're not just a human consequence of, of land use change and the like, which is where some of the literature is going right now. So this is a, a case study that we've, I had a, um, Malika working on in the lab, and we were looking here at Madagascar, and so we were looking in here at the southeast corner of Madagascar, the littoral forest. And this is one of the 
so-called hottest of biodiversity hotspots, a very, very biodiverse ecosystem in here. And as I come over this side, it's just pricking my neck. So what we have in here is this is a humid bioclimatic zone. And in this bioclimatic zone, on this southeastern uh, forest, what we have here are two vegetation types. We have uh, a very beautiful littoral forest, very biodiverse, full of these uh, important species for many of the animals in there, Madagascar like lemur and other things. But we also have this erica shrubland, and it has these very emotive value-laden turns attached to it. It's shrubland, it's um, <coughs> it, uh, degraded heathland is another one that that's used. And it's assumed that this landscape here, this is as a result of previous human activity. And it's human activity that caused a threshold event to occur, and as a result, you've ended up with this landscape. Now, interestingly, because you've got this shrubland on this landscape, that's given the green light to people like Rio Tinto to go in there and clear 90% of the littoral forest because it's already a degraded landscape. <clears throat> but we also know about this landscape is that it's had a lot of change in sea level. So this is a fossil, a fossil coral here, people sitting on it, so that we've had these big changes in sea level rise here, and what we had, this is the present day level, was between 6,000 and 3,000 years ago. We then have um, a one and a half metre rise above present in here, and then we get up to two and a half metres, and then to present. So you've had these big environmental perturbations going on on this environment in Madagascar, as well as human impact. So what does it do to the vegetation? So this is a, a typical uh, uh, diagram, vegetation diagram going back to 6,000 years ago, and this is just the predominant vegetation types in here. So we have, this is your littoral forest in here, but you're seeing here is your threshold. You get this big switch over into heathland and grassland. Alongside here, you can see storm levels, uh, sea level rise in here in the form of storm surges coming through. And we have a number, and it's the third marine surge that you seem to get that switch occurring. So your first question really is, well, where do humans come in onto this landscape? That's where humans come in onto this landscape, right at the top here, well into your heathland, so that humans have nothing to do with this transition. This is a naturally driven threshold event. But it can't just be driven by storm surges, because as you can see, we've had three before we even get to that threshold. <coughs> but it's once you start to look at other factors that are going on in this landscape that you start to realise it's not just... Um, storm surges that are occurring, but also this, these blocks here, they haven't come up very clearly, but these blocks here are known intervals of drought. And it's the combination of drought plus a storm surge that is when the system switches over. So why is it doing that? Well, it's stressing your littoral forest plants both from above and below. And it's the two together that seem to cause this whole system to switch over to your um, littoral forest, uh, to your, your heathland. So, here we have two things driving your threshold, surge and drought. You switch from one stable state, which is your forest, to the other, which is a heathland. And we've now identified that switch in five sites. So it's, it's certainly synchronous through that coastline. It seems to be a, a landscape scale event going on. Let's go on to uh, factor number four as to what we already know about resilience. And this is... Uh, this, is a, this is a social sciences and natural sciences both in here. Here's your ecological subsystem, subsystem and your social. And what we know is that those events that lead to threshold occur over a variety of timescales. 
So you have some slow-occurring events, gradually occurring through time, and then you have some faster events on top, and it's the combination of those two that normally leads to your switch. So in here, for example, your slow-changing components would be soil, uh, soil resources um, and uh, functional types, disturbance regimes, but your fast-changing uh, components would be animal density. So grazing regimes, those things mixed together are what you then end up with with your system switching over. And an example of this from uh, deep time or looking at paleo records, again, some work that Alistair, who's here, has been doing or was doing as part of his PhD, where we are looking at these switches within the Galapagos Island and particularly with the mangrove systems there. And the, the alternative stable state of mangrove is a, is a, is a, a, a microbial algal mat. And clearly, if you're trying to conserve a biodiversity ecosystem, what you really want is to retain the mangroves, not the microbial mats. Um, let's move on. Oh, okay. Press the wrong button. Okay. So what what was found in this in this uh, core was as we, when you went back in time to around 2,000 years ago, what you find is that here at the top here you've got the evidence for microbial mat, and at the bottom here you had the mangrove. So what's driving that, that event? I don't want to do it, go through it in detail because it's not going to this talk. But just to make the point, when Alistair went through the, all the different proxies and looked at the different factors that could be driving it, we had these fast processes in here, that, or first of all the slow processes, and that was actually gradual sea level change. So the sea level is gradually going down and down as the, the island is being uplifted, so that the mangroves are getting more and more effectively isolated from the, 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 the seawater. And then on top of that, you have faster occurring events. So you've got El Nino, La Nina events. So you've got aridification events coming through with the La Nina. And then to top it all, you have these very high energy tidal disturbances, which were then eroding the mangrove vegetation. And that is what seems those all together are what finally caused the system to go over the threshold. Fifth point, and one I could spend three hours lecturing on, and I'm not going to, is that both biotic and abiotic variables are responsible for threshold events in here. So we've got the typical ones that we all know about, species diversity, functional diversity. <coughs> Behavioural plasticity is a very interesting one, some excellent work being done by Ben Sheldon on that in Mitem. And then the abiotic on the other side. I think this, is, for me, is one of the most interesting of the things that we now know, and that is that as ecosystems lose resilience, they take longer and longer to bounce back. So here we have a, highly, a high ecological resilience in here. So here's your biomass. You have, a, you have a, a, an event, and you'll see it comes back to a sort of fairly stable um, state. This is a site that has low ecological resilience, so it gets hammered by whatever the threshold event is, and it's much slower, and you have much more perturbation in the recovery rates. And the reason I think this is interesting is because we certainly start to pick that up in many fossil records as well. Before a system switches over, you see this gradual increase in amplitude of the response to change. So what about the concept of resilience? So that's a sort of a, a, a whistle-top stop tour through resilience. I think the first one is it provides an important framework um, for describing mechanisms of, of ecosystem change, that, and it moves us away from the, the traditional linear model. We have linear systems in there, but we also have these very clear threshold resilient systems in there. Factors responsible for the loss of resilience are highly complex, and they do tend to be site, region specific. 
and a variety of different responses over time that <coughs> space are responsible. And I think I just wanted this, Steve Jackson gave me this slide, and I think this for me, really, whenever you look at fossil diagrams or deep time diagrams, you can see all these different responses in here. So the first one is, is in a sense, our ideal one for modelling resilience. So you have, let's say, climate is your predominant driving mechanism, and you have your ecosystem responding in a threshold-like way. We then have this one, where your climate doesn't seem to change, but you still get a threshold. Now, we certainly see that. Now, clearly something else is driving that threshold, but you have this, this, this very, it's not particularly satisfying relationship in there. There's none at all. Here, you have a threshold response to no apparent forces. So your climate doesn't change, but your threshold goes over. And here you have apparent resilience. So even though you have climate forcing, your ecosystem remains. So this is the one we really want to try and identify, if we're going to identify resilient landscapes. <clears throat> so I just want to go back to the Madagascan example just to show you what I mean about this. So these are two sites. They're about five kilometers apart in Madagascar. And here are the, if you remember, these are the drought bands in here. And here's your storm surges. I haven't plotted them on here. But what we can see in here, at this site, the top one, <coughs> the minute you get the combination of storm surge and drought, the system switches over. If you go to the bottom one, it doesn't. You retain your forest in there. Now, it does then switch over to the next one, but this system recovers. This one never does. So that even these two sites are very close together, why that's happening is a, a combination, we think, of ecological factors, but very, very difficult to disentangle, and even more difficult then to predict which system is going to be more resilient to ecosystem or to, to environmental perturbations. So the next really hard question is, right, we've got this complexity, we've got all these different, these different ideas, concepts, and evidence for all these different responses in there. How on earth do we turn that into meaningful management strategies. Remember, this is our quote from the beginning, strategies for sustainable management of such ecosystems should focus on maintaining resilience. And I think it is a major research challenge now to quantify and spatially define ecological resilience on landscapes, at a landscape scale that's relevant to uh, planning and policy. So I first of all thought, okay, what, what have we got so far in terms of what to tell us how we should be doing this? And I went to the, uh, the uh, uh, what is it, the, uh, yes, it's the Resilience Alliance uh, website in here. And they have a very useful book called Assessing Resilience in Social Ecological Systems. Some of you might know this. And I thought, well, let's see what different uh, things we need to be doing in here. Well, first of all, you need to define the system, okay, we all sort of... So the first thing you know, definitely is what are the variables of concern, scales of interest, who are the actors. Next, you need to assess resilience. Do alternative regimes resist, uh, exist? Well, clearly you need a temporal record in there to start to understand that. Where are the thresholds? Then you need to understand the implication of management interventions. How do different management practices affect the resilience? And then the last part, which is probably my favourite, is the synthesis, where it says revisit set one and repeat the assessment. So you could spend an awful lot of time going through this assessment process and not come out, I think, with anything that's going to be meaningful, although it might work on a small scale. And I would 
would argue that given our current knowledge, it's almost impossible, it's almost highly unlikely that most of those factors can be quantified. And such approaches are possibly usable for small-scale areas of individual sites and areas of concern. But the question is, how can we use this information to address those CBD targets that we had at the beginning, which is by 2020, ecosystem resilience and the contribution of biodiversity to carbon stocks has been enhanced through conservation and restoration. So this is the remainder of the talk is really thinking about what scientific information is needed to determine for resilience on the landscape and how can we do this? I think there's three points we need to first of all think about or what we need to know. First of all, how resilient is the landscape to environmental perturbations? And when we're talking about perturbations, it could be climate change, land use change, burning. What is the spatial arrangement of this resilience? And which parts of the landscape are close to a threshold event? So all of those are really critical to, to, to management. So I want to look at three case studies of work that's ongoing, work that's been already done, in order to address those three questions. The first one is looking at recovery rates of tropical forest. So tropical rainforest, we often are shown images of this. This is a degraded peatland forest. It's a, a dire state to be in. But we also know from fossil records and even recent historical records that it can and does recover. So you do get uh, recovery going on in these ecosystems. Now, I just want to give you, uh, this is an example. This is uh, New Georgia, the Solomon Islands. And it was about to be classified as a World Heritage Site for its, its diversity, its fantastic tropical cover, until a group of very annoying people from Cambridge went and measured the vegetation and found that it's actually 150 years old. It's, it's a recovered forest. And even worse than that, call it for, for a, a virgin forest, it was enriched in useful tree species. So it very much is a construct of the anthropogenic activity that's going on in that landscape previous to this, this um, uh, previous times. So, questions you can then take from that is, how quickly do tropical rainforests recover? So how quickly can they bounce back? When we're thinking about engineering resilience, <coughs> that's one of the questions we need to know. What factors affect those recovery rates? Do we see a difference according to what the disturbance event was like, and also where, geographical location? And how have recovery rates changed? Do we see a slowing down in recovery rates as you have more and more disturbance events? So this is work that's um, been done by Lydia Cole in the lab. And so far, she's looked at 40 um, published pollen diagrams right the way across the tropics here. And the, between them, they contain, well, they, they span, most of them span about six to 10,000 years and they have multiple recovery rates in there from previous disturbances. And she's counted approximately 140 disturbance events. So you can start to look at recovery from 140 disturbance events in these pollen diagrams. <clears throat> and the variables that she was looking at, you have the, um, the independent variables in here, like disturbance type, uh, type geographical attributes, and forest percentage decline. But you've also got the response variable measurements, things like rate of forest recovery, uh, forest cover, maximum, um, minimum over the disturbance, etc., etc. So, when you're classifying the disturbance type, we could, from using proxy data, you can then start to see what are the different factors being used in here, what different disturbance sites are in there. 
And there were some that clearly were a climate-driven disturbance event, for example, hurricane activity. We had quite a lot of hurricane disturbance in there. Um, you can see sea level rise, uh, precipitation. Um, and then you've got your humans. You've got burn, uh, disturbances following burning, and we've got forest clearance and agriculture in here. And then those that are unclear, we have to factor in there. And then when we're looking at recovery rates, you calculate the recovery rates uh, three different things in here. There's a recovery rate, which is the rate of forest recovery relative to the, to the degree of disturbance. There is forest percent decline, forest percentage decline relative to baseline, and then resilience, which is the change in the recovery rate through time. So first of all, how quickly have forests recovered from disturbance? A very simple question, but one that's curiously never looked at. Um, and what we find is that the majority of the, the disturbance events, it takes more than 100 years for tropical forest to get back to its former abundance. But you'll see there are some exceptions to this. Uh, quite a few studies, up to what, 15 or so, where it's less than 25 years, very rapid. So that's quite, I mean, in some ways that's quite encouraging, in some ways this is quite depressing. But it starts to give you a handle on how long it really takes to, to get this data back. Information, sadly, that the carbon trade is particularly interested in right now. What about geographical location? Now, we haven't, this is very new data, haven't looked at this, but there does to be very, this is, this, we've done huge amounts of stats on this, and so it is statistically uh, significant. And what we find is the fastest recovery rates seem to occur on forests in Central America, and the slowest recovery rates, but also the most variable in terms of recovery rates, are in South America. So what's going on there? Is this because we have, there's been a lot more human prehistory in South America? <clears throat> Type of disturbance also is uh, an interesting one. So forest clearance through burning results in slowest recorded recovery rates here, but also the most variable, again. And this last one, which I, I didn't dare put a line through it, because I think you can see that it is, it is variable. But what you do find is the more disturbance events you have, the slower the recovery rate in here. So you're never getting you're never getting high recovery rates when you have up to eight to ten disturbance events. So the system <coughs> is effectively slowing down. So how, what, it's very uh, straightforward. But using such approaches, you can start to determine recovery rates. One of the one of the things we need to be uh, doing according to CPD, and it's potentially useful information for restoration management. But it is only indicating one aspect of resilience, and that is recovery rate. And we need a lot more than that if we really are going to start to plan resilient landscapes. Because what we need to know is which landscapes are most resilient to perturbations, which ones to maintain their forest structure or their vegetation structure <coughs> despite being hammered by, for example, climate change. So how do we do that? So the second example I want to give is determining the spatial arrangement of resilient ecosystems across the landscape. So what are the key environmental factors? How does vegetation respond? And where are the landscapes that retain structure and function despite significant fluctuations? So this is a very nice paper that came out in Science uh, last year, late last year, and it's by uh, Hirota and others, where they were looking at tree cover disturbance in tropical and subtropical regions of Africa, Australia, and South America. And first of all, they were plotting the frequency of tree cover and showed that there's very clearly a trimodal relative frequency in here where you either have a forest or savanna or treeless. You haven't got a nice linear 
relationship here where you gradually go from forest through savanna through to treeless. And then when they plotted it against mean annual precipitation, they found that you can predict where these different vegetation types are going to be according to the, uh, the amount of precipitation in those areas. So how can you then use that information? Well, what they did was they then, this is the present-day distribution, just a South American example, present-day distribution of tropical rainforest. Those marked in yellow are plots where, according to your precipitation prediction, you should actually have, um, you, you shouldn't have forest, you should have savanna or treeless. So they would argue that these, or they did argue that these parts in here are um, on the edge because then you've got basically vegetation in the wrong climatic uh, band so that those areas are least resilient to future climate change. They're the ones that would be first to effectively go over the threshold. But there is a problem with this approach and that is it's static. You're just seeing a, a snapshot in time. We don't really know how the system will respond if this, if, if this is even correct. So this is where we started with our research, asking, okay, how can we look at changes through time, sort of response vegetation through time, and then look at how resilient vegetation is to climate perturbations? Now, the first thing we were doing, we were developing this, uh, this layer, this works uh, globally, where we just all we did, we stacked for one uh, interval of time rainfall and analyzed net uh, primary productivity and then those pixels that showed maximum primary productivity despite very low precipitation, we would, we would argue would be more resilient to drought. And so what you come out with as a very first approximation is a, is a resilience map. So these areas in Canada are more resilient to that drought than these other areas. But we have exactly the same problem. It's one single point in time. So the next thing that we've been doing, and it's been done over the last uh, couple of weeks actually, is start to say how, can, how many years can we stack back to understand changes in vegetation in response to climate change. So this is um, it's 12 yearly monthly time slices, 144 layers in total stacked on here, and at a 5 kilometer resolution. And what we do in here, so this is, this, this is photosynthetic health. So red is very healthy. If your plant's dying, it will effectively, or it's, it's, it's dried up, it will be green. So here we have the Sahara, you see it's green, and we've got the Congo and the um, South America's red. And what we then did was we, we took away the, um, uh, we detrended the seasonality to then to see how much variation there are there is through time of the, of the primary productivity of the photosynthetic features. And this is what you come up with. So this is the variance over those 12 years, and these areas you can see in here, these areas here, show a lot of variance in photosynthetic activity over the last 12 years. Then what we did was we went and we did the same for, um, this is for temperature. So we can see in here, this is the variance in temperature change over the last 12 years. And then we did the same for precipitation. I won't go through the details, it's exactly the same methodology being used in here. So that's your precipitation variation over the last 12 years. So it's 144 layers showing how much, uh, where the greatest areas of variance are within the data. But then you need to say, what is going to be the predominant variable driving the vegetation change? 
And clearly, as you, as you move further north, it's temperature limited, whereas further south, it's red water limited. And what we have in here, then, is we have a, a sensitivity, sensitivity to climate over the last 12 years. So you've got variance in climate variability and variance in productivity. And depending if you're in a temperature band or a precipitation band, you'll see the difference. So your resilience is 1 minus that variability. And what we've come up with from that is a variability of vegetation to climate over the last 12 years. So the areas that are in red here have shown a lot of variability in response to climate change, whereas these areas here have shown very little variability. And when you start to look at it, we could spend ages just looking at this, but I won't. But first of all, you can see that the boreal regions are showing a lot of change, a lot of variability. So too is the Amazon and parts of the Congo. The deserts are not, but then ecologically that makes sense because the deserts will not be showing much photosynthetic change to increase variability in climate. And every time we look at this and look at other parts of it, some of the agricultural areas are quite interesting. Effectively, the agriculture is creating a, a sort of almost a constant system. Now, we know some of them do have big drought events, but it seems, especially in, in India, for example, that some of the um, main agricultural areas seem to have more resilience in there. So it starts to provide an indication of spatial arrangement of climatic resilience across landscapes. And it's possible to use remote information to do this quickly. But you also could then use this approach to look at resilience to other factors like burning, grazing, and agriculture. But this is what it doesn't indicate. It doesn't indicate how close a landscape is to a threshold. So if we just go back to um, what we started off at the beginning, it's this question here. What we need to know is how, how close are we? Are we in this state or are we in this state? Are we about to go over, over this threshold in here? So there's two ways of doing this. First is to use long-term records, but we can see that it's very labor-intensive. Now, we, I don't think we'll ever have enough records. But the second one is to use present-day spatial patterning of grounds to start to look at this. And so your question really is, does the result of vegetation pattern look any different between a resilient and a non-resilient uh, site? Now, this point has been picked up before. This is a very nice paper in here. I don't, don't even know how to pronounce this name. But basically, this man's arguing, on the, and this shape is picked up on this, that as you move towards your threshold, your pattern ground changes, or your pattern of ground changes, so that you can start to identify when your system's going to switch by the pattern ground. And the, the reason for this, so if we look globally, this is, for example, this is pattern ground in peatland. Very distinctive patterning there. Pattern ground in semi-arid systems in here. And basically, it's, it's, it's interactions um, between plant growth and availability of a particular variable. In this case, um, they were arguing it's water. But what I think has been really neat and work that's been done in Oxford is by Richard Bailey, where he's taking this one step further. So here we have, um, this is from Google Earth. These are different pattern ground types that you can see when you take a Google Earth image of semi-arid systems in here. And what he's done is he's then modeled them using this uh, cellular automation model. And when you stress the system, gradually 
your pattern ground changes through time and you end up with this sort of open ground in here. So I think there's great potential for using pattern ground also as a mechanism for determining on landscapes which, which parts of the landscape are closest to that ecological threshold. So if you're thinking about relevance of this to management, then here we've got your semi-stable arid landscape, but this is your one that's close to your resilience threshold. So what are the future research challenges? Well, I think the first one is to test these. We've got these models of pattern ground, but what we really need to do is go back and test to see, is this correct? The pattern ground we see is that as a, really as a result of, of disturbances that have gone on over the past 10, 12, even 100 years in there. Um, and whether or not we can apply those pattern ground uh, resilience uh, concepts to other sorts of landscapes. So can we apply them, for example, to tropical and temporal ecosystems, mosaics, various other uh, landscape features in there? And how can we link those sorts of approaches to the sorts of approaches we're doing when we're looking through time, even if it's only uh, 12 years? So to conclude this, this uh, sort of whistle-tops tour through resilience, really, I think I want to come back to this target 2020, um, uh, uh, the CBD targets. So by 2020, ecosystem resilience and contribution of biodiversity to carbon stocks has been enhanced through conservation and restoration. I think the first thing that we have to acknowledge, and most people in this room always, we're never going to have a simple solution because resilience is incredibly complex, both social, socio, but also ecological resilience. And we can see huge variations, even within five kilometres, even within you know, 100 metres or so, just depending on abiotic and biotic variables of sites. To date, a huge amount of the focus has gone on describing the patterns we see. So, describing the processes and mechanisms leading to abrupt ecosystem change. And that's where the focus of all the, all the previous research is very much in there. But I think a major research challenge that we have to address is how we now quantify the, um, the spatial, and spatially define ecological resilience on landscape scales for policy and management. And to do this, we need to, we need to use ecological data, but I think we really have to use past, and past can be the last past 12 years, the last 100 years, past 1,000 years, to start to really understand which parts of the landscape are resilient, and which of those parts of the landscape really are at that threshold and about to switch over. So on that note, I will stop and just thank other people in the lab and by the way, thank you.